Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chris Jonu in the Startup Grind Global Podcast. And today we have um, one of the fastest growing startups in APAC uh, from Australia here. They're in Brisbane called ClipChamp um, with more than 10 million registered users um, and have secured over 11 million US in funding so far. Super fast growing product. Alex is an incredible operator. Uh, we've we um, recorded this as part of a live with a live audience, so a bunch of great questions come through. Um, aside from being an incredible founder and hearing the journey of ClipChamp, he has quite an interesting back, background in um, heavily involved in research. He was an associate professor at QUT. He was the industry-funded chair and digital innovation theme leader at, at, at the QUT, as well as a research program manager at SAP. He also put together... The first major visible collaboration between SAP and Google. Uh, and at QUT, he also founded the Aviation Innovation Network and QUT's Institute for Future Environments. So just very, very smart guy um, and very knowledgeable, and it comes through, that's for sure. And uh, so he goes everything through the pain points of scaling a digital video collaboration and uh, production tool in ClipChamp. So all the fun that happens with, you know, trying to get video uploaded and, and um, edited on the fly. And yeah, I'm sure you'll love it. Enjoy. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. We, you know, I, I, I am both excited about having you here because I love to hear about great Australian success stories, but also for the fact that, you know, I'm a, I'm a user of the product. I really love the product. Sometimes I, I, um, I'm making that up and telling them people that I, I love the product. But today is the true story. You can find me. You'll find me in your user base. Um, and so I wanted to kind of, I usually start with a bit of background. Can I, can I just go back a little bit, Alex, and ask about um, your education and, and how you kind of got into, um, well, I don't want to skip over the innovation stuff, but what was the education and, and, um, and where did you, what was the first, first role? Yeah, so uh, originally I wanted to become a medical doctor. Actually, if you go way back, I was, I was you know, set on a professional sports career. So I was a competitive swimmer and I was actually doing really well at national level. Um, so then I wanted to become a medical. Uh, as a proxy, I did a paramedic. Um, so I became a paramedic for a while. Uh, figured out really fast that, you know, intensive care and emergency medicine is not my thing. So skipped the medical degree. Um, went for computer science and business, bachelor, master, PhD, uh, and then the first role out of university was SAP. So I was at SAP in research, which is an innovation arm, basically where I've learned like, you know, how to pull up new things, uh, make sure that it counts from a business perspective, that commercial stack up, um, that you can, you know, get a, a tech team involved, a dev team involved to make make it happen. Um, but, you know, inside a big beam off like SAP, it's really difficult to 
do something that then sees the light of day. So we had a, a number of different things where we pulled up the first visible collaboration between SAP and Google in, in, in our team, and we built something that was um, uh, you know, really exciting to a lot of customers, but it was extraordinarily hard to get it into the product. And that was a point in time where we realized, yeah, we, we can do this forever inside SAP, but it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to, you know, get an oil tanker moving and in, into a different direction. Um, I left, I joined QUT then as an associate professor, did a lot of teaching, a bit of research. And my co-founder was on me, uh, with me on the Google collaboration back at SAP. He then also joined QUT, came, moved over from Germany, um, joined SAP and on the site we started uh, doing this thing that we had done at SAP all this time, just like um, uh, for ourselves, basically. So we started building a lot of video technology. Uh, eventually, then we incorporated it. We dabbled around. We wanted to build the biggest distributed supercomputer. Um, and, and sort of it took a while until we settled on what Clipchamp is today. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it was broadly like out of university SAP, then QT, and then the startup. So can you can you just elaborate a little bit on the um, the biggest distributed supercomputer? Yeah, we uh, back in, back in the day there was this Boink network or SETI at home. I'm not sure if you remember that, but you know people could download a a, sc a screensaver, uh, and when it was kicking in, you would contribute compute cycles to a distributed supercomputer. Um, but it was pretty small. Like when we started, it had about one-tenth of the size of the biggest actual supercomputer, which we thought was a design flaw that people have to download a screensaver. And we thought like, if this was based on web technologies, and instead of you having to endure all this advertising, you know, you could just contribute a bunch of compute cycles while you're browsing the web, um, we could actually build a really massive supercomputer. So we started building this. We brought it to Steve Baxter, who was, um, as you know, one of, the, one of the big investors here in Australia, um, that was before he was on Shark Tank. Um, we pitched to him the idea of the biggest distributed supercomputer. He called it malware. Um, and then, you know, we, it, it didn't really, uh, it, he, despite the fact that he was negative on the concept, um, he basically explained to us what we're trying to pull off is a three-way um, product. Like we needed three different parties involved. And that was at a time where Uber, Airbnb, and, you know, they started with a two-way market and we wanted to pull up a three-way market right out of, of Brisbane. And, and so that convinced us to sort of take it a step back and, you know, leave that idea behind. Interesting. And was it kind of like a blockchain element to that? Well, that's the thing. Like, um, like back then we thought it was a, it was really legit. We wanted to do video transcoding. We figured out that you know, there was cloud transcoding. We knew what suppliers would charge for it. We knew what um, Google would roughly pay uh, in ad revenue to publishers. And we created a business case out of it. It worked. And we legitimately wanted to hack videos in little pieces, send them around. And when you're reading your news, you just transcode a bit of video for us. Um, so there was no blockchain whatsoever. Later on then, you know, what actually turned it into malware is that people try to exploit you know, people's hardware while they were browsing for, for doing uh, uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, so I'm glad we didn't go down that route, but yeah, that, that was a route. Well, I'm going to circle back to Steve Baxter because he ends up becoming an investor down the track with Clipchamp anyway, doesn't he? Correct. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the, um, well, first, you know, just, just out of curiosity, right. Cause I, you know, reading the bio and understand like the, um, um, 
you know, the, the background in innovation, you know, in one way or another. Um, did you find that, you know, that you had that at least working with those big companies, dealing with big numbers, um, you know, to your point, putting these business cases together was beneficial in, in your startup journey? Uh, I'd say there's a bunch of like, do you need a PhD for startup journey? No. Do you need to write a business case for a large business? No. Um, having said that, like pitching to an investor and creating a deck and, and sort of speaking to their needs, their goals, um, what they want, um, and doing this whole thing inside a big company is probably not that dissimilar. So um, the other thing you go back, like does an academic career help? Well, probably not, but you tend to write um, grant applications as an academic. And that have, you know that helps in the startup world too, because you go through government grants, for instance, right? Um, I'd say it's not directly transferable what I've done in my past life, but the fact that you had to pull off something against like a whole lot of resistance is actually very comparable to what you face in startups, right? It's, it's not that the world waits for your startup. Like you really have to, you, you, you're, you're doing an uphill against the stream type of fight all the time. And if you want to move something in a big company when you're down at the individual contributor level, it's actually very comparable. It's just that you have to change the approach on how to get stuff done. Nice. Can you, and then, um, and I mean, VCs don't seem to, it seems to, they seem to be drawn by kind of academic kind of background sometimes as well, right? No. No. No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's like, it's a qualification that you don't need. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't my life plan to be in startup land, right? I actually, I, I like the academic journey. It's just that I like this now way more. So, um, uh, career change right in the middle well absolutely well, you, you're preaching to the choir here um all the all the audience all the startups on on the call can you talk a little bit about the um you know the early days of clipchamp and you know how it kind of pivoted from this you know distributed supercomputer to uh you know um, you know making it easy for people to create video or whatever was in between and how you got started and how you found that problem yeah so we uh, so we wanted to build that biggest distributed supercomputer. And um, when we had the Steve Baxter encounter, it kind of, you know, we took a step back and we started thinking at that point in time, we had put private money in, we had hired a guy who could help us. Um, it was all privately funded. Um, and, you know, we came to a realization, like after a few drinks, um, we ended up in the pancake house that was 24 hours open here in Brisbane, like at a ridiculous hour in the morning. And, you know, the three of us, we had a vote, like, what are we going to do with this? Are we just going to, you know, kill this all off or do we pivot and go like, take every bit of technology that we build for that distributed use case and launch it as a standalone platform. Um, so we voted, we were two against one for doing it. And we said, okay, well, we democratic, we'll just do it now. And um, uh, the third person accepted it and, and we went along with it. And um, we launched a thing called transcodecentral.com. And no one was interested. No one came. We thought, surely that's not because of the name. But we still changed the name to clipjamp.com. And sure enough, no one came. No one was interested. And so the next thing we did is uh, we, so Zuran, our technical co-founder, he actually built a little webcam recorder. And no one came. Uh, and the next thing we did is we thought, like, maybe it's a distribution problem. So we brought it in the Google Chrome web store. Um, which was a store back then um, that you could list applications in. 
Um, we didn't even build an application. All we did is we took our URL and we wrapped it in their application framework and put it into their app store. And it took about a day or two and we had a review and we were sitting there and like, did you post a review? Is that, is that someone that you know? No, no. So where does that review come from? And it turned out it was some, some random person on the internet. And then the, the third or fourth review, all of a sudden it became regular. We get reviews every day and we thought like, okay, well, something's happening here. There was an American teacher who goes like, we're the only application that allows people on Chromebooks to record videos with their webcams. And we're like, really? So we went down to Harvey Norman and we said like, can you give us the cheapest Chromebook that you have? And we bought one for 200 bucks. And sure enough, we could do a webcam recording. And so we try to understand this, but Chromebooks back then, obviously you can't install anything. No one had built a web-based technology stack that allows you to manipulate and encode videos in browser. We were the only ones. We did it because we wanted to build a, biggest, a big distributed supercomputer. And repurposing that technology as a webcam recorder, about 100,000 people using us. And, wow. and it was primarily because you know, school kids in the US um, buy this Chromebook, they all come physical webcam embedded in it and no recording software. So one teacher told us effectively we were the big fat recording button that Google forgot to build. And so this was the start. And from there, we systematically then, then it became an exercise in listening to people, you know, what do they want? And at some stage they pointed more and more into video editing use cases. And that is what ClipChamp is today. So four pivots in. Absolutely. Well, can you talk a little bit about how that, um, you know, how that feedback is kind of digested uh, internally and how ClipChamp becomes ClipChamp and not say like a loom? Because if, you, if I, now that I'm hearing that, you could have very well gone to, oh, well, let's just figure out how we could keep building features on the screen recording bit. Yeah. And that's, on, on originally, we thought like we, we cannot charge for this specifically given the fact that there's so many school kids using us. Um, so we went down a path of building an API that allowed third party platforms to put a webcam recorder slash video uploader onto their website. And that ran fairly successfully for a while. Um, and it's actually from a business perspective, it's, it's quite good. Um, but we looked at we looked at it and we thought like is this is this going to be like a big independent like business and success story or you know do we need to shoot for more and and that was probably like when when we thought like you know we have a good technology it's like a good understanding now of the video industry um it may make sense to be a lot more ambitious right and so i think at that point in time it was still driven by we can do a lot more with what we have um and also then, you know, we listened to reviews on the web. So it was basically the loudest voice or the latest voice um, that we reacted to. Someone told us we can't do this. Hey, let's do it, right? Um, later on, as we grew, it obviously got replaced with proper product management, uh, et cetera. So, but yeah, the early days was really driven by, you know, whoever leaves reviews um, and really what we thought might make sense for us and, and where we wanted to be. Like we wanted to build something uh, something big and interesting and you know it just seemed like a recording API was not that thing. And, and, and then how do you kind of prioritize um, you know the vision and where you want to go versus you know um, you know this kind of the trends you're seeing from from user feedback? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. We 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 are very data driven. So we when we launch a product, so we recently launched um, our first mobile product, um, which is in the area of um, video subtitling. So it's a very tedious use case on mobile, and we made it very simple in in line with you know what we generally try. And um, when we do this, we we have a whole lot of dashboard with all sorts of analytics information. So we know exactly how it's trained. And that allows us then within very short iterations, sort of go like, you know, you see an activation chart and you see like a huge drop off and that drop off there, right? So that then product management exercise to find out, okay, what's going wrong here? What like they go out and they interview people. Um, we build a second version, we fix it, we see the charts adjusting, and then we, you know, we fix the next problem. So there's a certain amount of um, of that that goes on, like after you launch the product um, and when you're trying to get onto that way to product market fit. Um, but I guess like, you know, once you're there, then you're trying to understand, okay, well, what else is it that we have to do? Where your vision, basically our vision is that we can, we can become a supplier for the entire video value chain. At the moment, we're focusing on editing and to a certain extent on distribution, but video really starts with the idea and then the logistics around shooting and sourcing, and then editing, then approval workflows and discussions, and then distribution, and then an analysis. We believe that non-professionals and non-creatives need to go through these steps as well, right? Not, not only the professional and the creative sector. And, and that's the vision that we have. So when we're there from, from the perspective, like when we feel that our editor is good enough, um, that's in the point in time that we can say, okay, well, let's start tackling what's left and right of the value chain or in the value chain of video editing. And um, so I suppose like we're, we're trying to get to maturity that, that really, that we have confidence in. And the minute we have achieved that, then, you know, we're trying to spin up new product squads around additional functionality or additional products, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it does. So the, in, the, in this kind of, um, Please, anyone uh, on the call, please feel free to add questions, by the way. We, we, we want to keep it pretty interactive. So on this kind of road to product market fit, is there like um, particular tools you use or these are kind of inbuilt? In if there's, if, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of the audience right now, how they can kind of, you know, um, you know, map where people are dropping off and how to kind of improve the uh, the user experience. How, how are you doing that? If I can get a little bit tactical for a minute. There, there are tools, yeah, that we use. I mean, we use Amplitude. We're, we're like throwing like more than a hundred million events or something into into Amplitude every single month. Um, so basic statistical level, understand really well what our users are doing. Like how long are the videos? Where do they drop off? What's their retention by cohorting? So you can, you can figure all of this out. Um, but you're not really getting like, you're not really understanding an individual. So it's a very statistical way of, of looking at it. Um, we had for a while um, things such as look back on our platform where we could sort of see what users are doing. And um, we got rid of all the privacy, what videos they've created. We always had a, a very big privacy angle. So we, you know, we didn't, we didn't see their content, but we saw how they interacted with our platforms and what buttons they were struggling with. Um, so that was another source of information. We had Kenny going for a while um, for feedback and feature requests. Um, in time, they get substituted sometimes for bigger platforms. Sometimes we're building some um, survey tools, uh, home-built survey tools on the platform. Sometimes we're leveraging something like um, a survey monkey and build it in. Um, we use uh, for surveys as well um, app queues that we that that our non-devs can basically run. 
any sort of uh, questionnaire without any any sort of uh, developer involved, but it can be marketing, a growth person, or product manager, uh, who just basically picks a certain code and 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 runs some something by them. Um, there's a there's a number of different tools involved. Um, we obviously do a lot of A/B testing as well. Um, we use Google Optimize for that. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a range of tools. We take everything we can get our hands on, everything that gives us data. Absolutely. A startup helps healthcare workers get a better look at what's going on with patients, and much faster. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of November 11th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. The good news? There's no shortage of x-ray machines in developing countries. The not-so-good news? There aren't enough specialized doctors to read them. Yes, it can be done remotely using telemedicine, but in situations where time is of the essence, triaging patients for x-rays and getting those x-rays read quickly isn't always easy. A startup called NeuralMed is stepping in to meet that challenge. Its platform uses AI and natural language processing to help medical staffs reduce the time it takes to get help to high-priority patients by up to one hour. NeuralMed scans intake notes using NLP to spot patients who have the most pressing need for x-rays. Then the AI scans x-rays to alert staffs as to who needs immediate care. The company is working with six hospitals in Brazil, using Oracle Cloud to train the algorithms and Oracle partner NVIDIA to provide the chips. It's a partnership that's giving doctors a much clearer picture. Meet the Startups asked NeuralMed co-founder Anthony Iger why an infrastructure like Oracle's is better than just using cloud credits. Any company can offer cloud credits, but Oracle offers an infrastructure that no one else can. Three or four weeks after joining the program, I was talking to the entire Brazil sales team for healthcare, showing what our products can do. And they were introducing us to Oracle healthcare clients in Brazil. This gives us credibility, and I would rather that than more cloud credit. If you x-rayed your startup, would you be happy with the technology you see inside? Check out Oracle's startup program at oracle.com slash startup. Uh, and, and then, can I ask, okay, if we get back to that kind of that initial, um, you know, in the Chrome store, you see a hundred thousand users. Can you talk about this, this, the scale from there? Cause I think you're sitting on, um, if the, the bio is probably always changing, but like 11 million users or something at the moment. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, 12 issues, something registered. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's definitely grown really, really fast. Um, in the beginning, so when I was saying 100,000 users, they weren't registered users. We we didn't back then. We didn't have a user registration in place because you know we only had like one person developing, um, and he was busy building a video transcoder in the browser. So um, we took this initial success and we basically took Google Analytics into our first capital raise, where we raised a bit of money and we said like, we're now building a commercial version out of this. So we're building an API and we're building like a freemium tier out of the compression and recording tool that we had. Um, so that was the first pitch to investors. And um, that money that we raised back then actually allowed us to start the user uh, uh, registration journey. Uh, that only happened in 20, when did we switch this almost 14 or 16 or something like that? Um, I believe 16, 2016, as we switched on user generation. And so when we're talking about 12 million registered users, that was from the end of 2016. And um, 
in the beginning it was obviously slower so we had um you know we we obviously only had a utility tool so i think in the first year or so it took about a year or so to get to one million um so this would have been about three years ago at which point in time we had started thinking about this video editor um and it all basically accelerated from there um so i yeah it's it's uh, yeah it, it starts slow and then sort of gradually revs up and grows faster so it, am i am i right in assuming that like you know the the kind of the driver being you know the the growth of social video right yeah i think i think the underlying societal well you got like the 2000s were the birth of digital video where mp4 came up and netflix started shifting streaming youtube was born the 2010s were the consumer space shifting to video at scale like we started re reading recipes when we want to cook something or if you want to repair something you go to youtube and so the 2010s was like you know everyone who knew something wrapped it into a three-minute video and put it on youtube and like no matter if we want to learn something fix something do something you know we go to youtube and we learn it this also led to a huge business disruption. So our thesis was always that 2020s will be when the business world has to catch up. And, um, you know, when you're in a certain industry like automotive, 30% of your revenues are aftermarket, after you sold a car. Now, if your car breaks, uh, if you can go to YouTube and figure out how to fix it, like some people are doing it. So it leads to loss of revenue for them, right? So the business world will, has, will have to catch up for customer communication, for feedback, for reviews, for executive communication, you know, for partner, uh, partner collaboration, what have you. So it was always our thesis that that's happening. And, and that is what we're seeing. COVID just accelerated that. I think that is the underlying driver. The underlying driver is digital video is now possible. We as consumers have been conditioned to, you know, consume video content. And now it's the expectation. So if any business now puts text in front of us, we go like, uh, next yeah exactly um and then is there can you just can we just talk a little bit about like you know it's a really well-designed product right like um you've kind of disrupted the you know the adobe premieres and the you know the kind of um something that you needed to get a degree to kind of use before um how did you kind of um was this a human-centered design exercise? How did you get like the emphasis on, on um, you know, the the ease of use? Yeah, it's a difficult one for us, uh, to be honest. And and we still feel like we've got like you know when we we obviously look a much more critical way at the platform than than you just did, you know. So we see like issues left, right, and center that we want to address, and you know we're just impatient. We want to get it all done at the same time, but we obviously have to sequence it. Um, we knew about tech, we knew about marketing, you know, we knew, um, uh, basically, you know, we could do, we could figure out product relatively good ourselves, but we had absolutely no eye for design. And we tried a bunch of different approaches. The one that eventually worked for us was work with a local agency that, that, you know, is, has a really good market reputation, um, to kickstart it and help us recruit designers into the organization um, the other thing that we weren't confident is just hiring designers because like none of us was able to judge like you know you show me a portfolio and i'm going like that's nice right um but is it good i don't know and so we worked with them 
and eventually that allowed us to hire some really really rock solid designers um, and it all spiraled from there so now the design team is is about eight people uh, and there's some excellent people amongst them right and what we see now in terms of the brand that comes out and the new product designs uh, is getting better by the day but this was really hard like specifically because none no one in the founder team had any expertise or or experience in that area so th so essentially like it was a trust in knowing in the recommendation that well that these people are good yeah and yeah i'm not the judge i'm not the judge because uh, i can't be the judge because i i know nothing about plumbing or whatever else right yeah i just yeah, we needed to build the trust um, with these guys. We knew, like, we 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 knew their market standing. We knew that they had rock solid designers, um, and that was the ingredient that we needed. So we we partnered. We you know we had about a year or so for their designers to build the initial version. Um, and at the end of the partnership, it was pretty. They helped us build our own design function, and that's exactly how it worked out. And did that kind of change the the culture internally? Um, yeah, I mean, we have now, like our office, we now, it's like beautifully branded, um, you know, we, it's, it's things that we always wanted to do, but that we never really had an opportunity to do. Um, we're doing a lot more user feedback sessions now where we're validating designs with people. Um, we have certain um, aspects like our mobile app, for instance, what came back loud and clear in terms of product management is that they need something fast and easy. Like on the mobile, if you want to do anything with video, it's usually complicated and the buttons are small and you feel like it's it's really not not great. So how do you make things fast and easy, specifically complicated things? Um, so that comes back from product management. Now designers go in and they actually measure prototypes. They go like they give you know 20 people a task, like do this for me, do this for me. And then they check out like how long does it take you to discover these buttons? These were all things that we couldn't do before. Um, and that's really changed the approach um, for us to build things that sort of hit the market a lot harder. And, and so you take mobile, for instance, we had, um, we launched it and within four weeks we were trending on TikTok. Um, there's a, there a lady with half a million followers or so that tweeted, TikTok about us and that just spiraled. And all of a sudden we had all these people showing up. That was the only reason we could do this is because product had found out a theme that was really, really important and design had validated that over and over again, that it actually worked. And was, was it also, um, does, that, does that like, cause I'm just thinking about the product now, does that also come in the fact that you have the, you know, the super wide screen for the Facebook and you have that kind of um, vertical format, which is, you know, one of only a handful that has, you know, kind of catering to TikTok, Trilla, all these other um, upcoming apps, well, Main, the biggest now, but yeah, was that you were pretty early on that trend, right? Yeah, that drives complexity for 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 creators and specifically for non-professional creators. Um, like a lot of social media marketing departments, they just go like, "I want a message, and I need it on different platforms." But specifically, yeah, this is where you're running into the problems that you just you just discussed, right? So one platform wants you to do it like that, the other platform wants you to do it like that. Now you want the same motion titles, the same story, but you don't want to do the same over and over again. Um, that's certainly something that we have discovered fairly quickly. Um, are we really, are we really, not yet, but that's certainly something that we want, that you create once and you go like, okay, well, you know, produce it for me for three or four different platforms. 
you know, there's restrictions in terms of size, length, aspect ratio, and to be doing this really, really well is a huge time saver for people. And that's definitely something that you can market, um, but it's also incredibly hard to build. So um, that's, that's definitely on the roadmap for us. And the, the, the integrations, what I really love, I'm sorry I'm going too much into a lot into the product for anyone that hasn't used ClipChamp. I'm hoping most of you that are on the call have tried it, but the, what I really find cool about the product is the, um, you know, the integration with Giphy and the ability um, to add, you know, the stickers and the GIFs in there. Is that, is that a partnership that takes place or that they just, you can just kind of connect that up, but it just gives so much flexibility in, you know, your look could be endless, you know, even though you've kind of got this limitation on fonts and whatever, but those, those two integrations right there can help you produce, you know, a million and one videos. Yeah, exactly. So, so there are partnerships involved. So one is a, a video stock provider that we have where we're getting about a million assets as part of their library. Um, and basically what that means is that we, that any one of our creators can go in and, you know, consume all of that stock video content. In the past, if you have a, an application, uh, a video editing application, and you're opening up a web browser, you go to any one of those libraries, you browse through their stock, you download the watermark version, you put it into your video, you check out whether it works or not. If it works, you go back to the stock provider, you buy it, you download it again, you re-import it again. Like these were the use cases that we saw that make it tedious and complicated and, and a professional domain. And we said like, this is gonna be integrated. Like you, your files are on Dropbox or on Google Drive. Your video provider is, or your, your stock provider is someone else. Your upload target is YouTube. You, you need to reach this out of one experience, right? Um, and, and that's exactly the direction into which we're going. Absolutely. Um, uh, please, please drop your questions here. I'll take you one from camera here. Interested to know if your customer base stayed the same uh, and, and, grow, and grown as you evolved and added capability. Um, yeah. And then new capabilities open new doors to customer groups. Correct. Yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting one. And and basically, when we launched, the whole platform was um, was a lot less stable. Um, we, you know, you, you had real problems like creating longer videos, uh, and everyone had that requirement like straight away. Uh, you know, in time, motion titles we made the platform more stable. Um, and things such as COVID happened. The COVID was actually interesting in that the the average video length that people would would be exporting and literally we're doing tens of thousands of videos every single week um, was around two and a half minutes. And during COVID, within within about a month or so, it went up to four minutes and stayed there. So the average length now is considerably longer than what it was before. And so you're seeing that the use cases change. You're seeing that. The user base, the customer base, like if, if you do not change your channel, if your channel stays the same, you're getting the same mix of customers in. But if you're catering more for one cohort than another, say, for instance, by providing better motion titles or providing logo um, uh, placement opportunities, then you'll see that, you know, there's a lot more business users sticky uh, to your platform or a lot more creators or YouTubers that, that become sticky to your platform. So in time, the mix changes because these people come back more often. 
And, and that is certainly something that we've seen. So we've seen in time that, you know, if, if COVID had happened like two years ago, people couldn't have done four minute videos easily, right? And that, that probably would have been bad. Now it's not so much of a problem. Um, and, and we see it happening and we can actually support it. And, uh, and, and, and so, so that's, that's definitely a trend that we're seeing. And also with the birth of new platforms, um, TikTok again has different requirements when it comes to length and aspect ratio. And at some stage you get bombarded with, hey, do we have any TikTok templates? Or can we have a specific TikTok export? Um, so these people come in and they're, they're usually very demanding. Nice. Um, can we, uh, I'm gonna take a couple more of the questions. So thank you for those, everyone. Um, but before we do that, can I just talk about the challenges and you know, I guess the opportunities that you've had with scaling the business? And I like to kind of switch between the, the, the technical aspect to it and, the, and then um, to, the, to the people or the, you know, the human capital component. Can you talk a little bit about scaling and, and um, what's worked for you and what didn't work, I guess? Scaling the organization specifically? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, the, and the, I'm guessing the tech infrastructure sound because you were so quite, you know, quite a technical team early on, you were kind of geared for growth, but I'd be also interested to hear around, um, you know, yeah, the technical scale of it all as well. Yeah, so uh, so we basically, we almost tripled the size of the organization since the beginning of the year, since December last year. So, so we went from like a touch over 25 to about 75 now. And um, um, it was actually interesting, like the other day, someone in the team came up and said, Alex, how many people are we now? And I said, 75, he said, no way. And I was like, that's actually a good answer. So it didn't feel like we're becoming too big for them. Um, and everyone is in their squad. So they're working. So if you're a designer and you're working with a number of developers, product manager and a growth marketer in a aid, and, and that's most of your world. And so for them, it doesn't really feel like you, you don't realize that there's all these other squads now popping up. And, and we try to sort of, you know, keep them as autonomous and as, as, as focused as possible. Um, so from that perspective, it's gone, it's gone relatively well. Uh, what, are, what, what we're more struggling with, I guess, is where this model breaks, where a single squad cannot look after a new um, piece of innovation where, that we need, where multiple squads need to work together. We haven't had that requirement in the past, right? So all we, we basically said, okay, well, you know, we're, we're building these squads, we're making sure they're really, really efficient. Uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, some need to work together and you have to figure these things out. Um, so that was certainly one of those growth pains. Um, we also realized the more developers we have on board, obviously the bigger the build gets. So what you want to build and what you want to ship on a frequent basis. So we had to make infrastructure changes, not so much like from our hosting perspective, the hosting was always fine. Um, but how we sort of, you know, how a developer uh, then creates a pull request, you know, submits their code, someone else reviews it, it ends up in master and then gets shipped into production. These things became extraordinary, you know, just, just do, uh, you know, put more specific infrastructure for feature flags, launching things behind feature flags so that people um, could easily it and then sort of test it with 5% of our users. If it works and increase to 20, 40, 50, 100. Um, we had to do infrastructure changes to be able to cater for more engineers in the organization. Um, we had to have, look, overall, overall, I'm, uh, you know, we, it, it, it looks as if we haven't had any major fallouts. Like a lot of people said that um, 
you know, when you hit 30 or so, you get communication breakdowns. Well, we hit 30 and COVID happened, so everything had to go to an online forum. We had, um, you know, we, we introduced sessions on a weekly basis where people could ask anything uh, and I would answer. So we try to be as open, as, as transparent as possible, you know, because we knew this was potentially a concern. Um, yeah, and, and some of the bigger challenges, like I said, is like when you have to get multiple people to get outside of a squad, a product squad, that, that is sort of something that we're, that we're currently solving, um, how we do this efficiently. But overall, it felt, it felt quite good. And, and you know, the, the people that we have on board, we have an absolutely incredible team. Um, you feel like the minute something breaks, they're actually all involved in trying to fix it. Uh, and, and that's like the attitude that we want to see and, and that we see. Is, who's, who's, on, who's on a squad? How many, how many people on a squad and what are the... Yeah. So a squad is usually three to five developers, a product manager, a product designer, and a growth marketer. And so they know the product manager obviously knows everything about the customer and the competition. The dev knows everything about technical architecture and design. The growth marketer knows everything about the levers and the analytics, and the designer knows everything about experience. And on a weekly or fortnightly basis, they're coming together and they're negotiating. And, and is that, and does that squad um, kind of um, the small team thing? Is that how you you're scaling with the? If I'm now looking at geographically and globally, is that what you're trying to do? Get five people those kind of um, those roles in Brazil, or whatever. How how do you handle um, the growth of of the team globally? Yeah, so it's the, these are that's primarily the product organization. What I was just talking about. So, and we have a people team that's also four people. Um, they're running in a, in a very similar way. They just don't have, um, you know, product managers and designers, um, but people, people like recruiters and uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, marketing is a bit different. Our US team, they're primarily in business dev. They're talking to large scale platforms, but they're running as a squad as well. The product organization, that's that's the um the organization that is structured in that way um and so we use it to scale out so mobile becomes a squad our content teams a squad our editors a squad and so every single new functionality that we're trying to build like when we're focusing on partnership that's a new squad and so so we see we see that as a scaling mechanism that we find something that has a vision and mission you know and a group of people that look after that but in a very autonomous way very cool and and then on the um, well on the aut aut autonomous bit and the you know the move to uh, remote and asynchronous communication or whatever how um, how are you is are you coming back to the office or is this kind of working in your favor and um, yeah can you give can you give me a bit of an insight on the remote work side of things as well yeah it I mean it obviously felt weird as it was for everyone else to sort of start recruiting and onboarding remote we had these beautiful things where if a new staff member joined we had a, a their desk and we have this policy that if you start with us you just tell us what you want what, what you need in terms of hardware and we just buy it for you right um but we're not we don't, we don't have like okay well you get a budget of two thousand dollars or something like that um so usually people get like you know the the dream configuration that they want we just buy it and then they get swag and then we would put their desk together monday morning when they joined it would be like Christmas, like there was all the goodies and they could unpack them like everything that they ever wanted. Um, so going to a remote onboarding process was harder because this was so much part of our culture. 
and you know the people team was awesome in that they um they shifted this around and they sent a big um, pack of goodies out to people but they said you must not open this until monday morning nine o'clock and so monday monday you know during the day we had usually a founder lunch with the new starters so the founders took them out and we had a lunch session we obviously had to ship that to virtual morning coffee and so people were telling us stories that they had this packet there sitting around for a week and they couldn't open it because you know we because alan had told them nine o'clock on monday morning and you know someone was telling us they had their dad over and you know and that was what's this oh that's the new company that i'm joining you know and but i can't like you know what's in there well i can't tell you i can't open I can't like it's it's going to be Monday morning nine o'clock, so it was really funny. Like um, so, some of those transitions were um, they you know they we found substitutes um, doing this really really well. Um, everything office collaboration kind of shifted more to online methods. Uh, methods um, we transferred then everyone had an allocated desk in the office. We shifted that to hot desking. Um, so there's a number of there's a, there's a less than 10 or so who work permanently out of the office. They have a, a fixed allocated desk. There's a number of people who work permanently from home. The large majority though will do hot desking. So they come in in the morning, um, they have a little locker, they grab their stuff, pick any desk and they're sitting next to someone. Uh, so uh, yeah, going forward, we'll definitely keep it like that because it seems to work really well for people. Um, if they want the social contact and if they, Right, discuss and be around the whiteboard. They'll come in. Otherwise, if it's heads down, you know, then they'll stay at home. Absolutely. And can I can I just touch on you know, um, um, you know, especially given the different time zones and everything. You know, I had this come up um, in a conversation the other day, and I'm just curious to get your input on, you know, the the boundaries and 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 mental health, I guess, and. Um, how are you kind of, especially when you've got, you know, super motivated, you know, entrepreneurial type people and there's now, you know, I'm coming to you from a garage. If it wasn't my wife calling me in at night, I'd probably try and have a crack at working 24 hours a day if I could, especially when you're passionate about something. How are you kind of managing, um, yeah, mental health and, and, and the work-life balance with uh, employees when it's, you know. Yeah. Well, so we have a single founder in Europe, in Germany. So they're about nine hours away right now. So what I usually do is um, I walk home. Um, so I just put my AirPods in. And so once a week I'm syncing up with him and we're talking for an hour. It's early in the morning for him. It's late, late in the evening or like in the evening or like just after work. But it's on my way home anyway. So that, that's not a mental health problem. Um, with the US, uh, there's about there's 17 or 18 hours um so there, there's a fair amount of overlap like the end of the days are, are like they're all on the west coast at the moment um so um there's a fair amount of overlap and we sort of you know again i'm like every now and then if i'm doing morning exercise or something like that i'm calling one of the one of the people um otherwise from the office again there's a fair amount of overlap during the day um we have support staff in the philippines that cover two different time zones um so one's working really early one's working really late um, they figured it out themselves, uh, so that's that's nothing that we told them. Um, when we're doing support, we did like before we had people in the U.S. Our German colleague would look after the the day stretching into the U.S. We will take over the later parts of the day. In the U.S. from from Australia, so it all worked really fine. Um, I got to tell you, when I was at SAP, it was much more stressful 
um, <laughs> because of like, you know, four or five times a year to Germany and then, you know, additional trips to Asia and America. So I was spending so much time on planes and late night calls, early morning calls. We, we tend to, we tend to have that under control at the moment. So a lot of the communication is asynchronous um, and a lot of the sync calls, they happen at really good times. Cool. And then, and then how do you kind of, how do you keep uh, in shape? And I'm sorry, I've got a bunch of these mental health questions, uh, but uh, we're in a, um, you know, we're in a different headspace down here in Melbourne. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, just how do you kind of, you know, how do you keep your regime and, and stay focused and, is there any any tips you've you've picked up over the years to just you know stay on mission kind of thing? Uh, I, I I think exercises. I think exercise and nutrition is is really really important. So I I really like I've never had fast food or never eaten fast food. So it's always like I you know I I just eat uh, vegetables uh, and lots of it and as fresh as it gets. Uh, I walk a lot. You know I. Uh, some somewhat between 10 20 kilometers a day i'm trying like every single weekday um and that's about everything like you know you don't need any additional exercise or anything else um and, and that's really like it gets me into a headspace i can think i can you know i can call relatives when i'm walking um or friends i can sort of think things through um uh you know so de depending on how far i'm i'm going uh to, for me that's that's perfect and that works um, everyone, everyone needs to find their own type of exercise, but for me, the right food and the right, the right sort of exercise um, is perfect. Great. I'll, I'll take a couple of the questions here. Um, sorry, we're jumping back a bit. T totally different, different um, conversation here. Uh, now, so what's the ratio between paid and free users? And yeah, kind of um, how do you, you know, where do you want to go from here? Um, but can I also add to that the, um, you know, the priority on continually adding value to the, to the free product or whatever? How do you kind of balance that as well? Yeah, that, that's that's a that's a really interesting question. Like, you know, how much do you want to give away for free? Like, how much do you want to uh, sort of please people so that they come back more often, um, as opposed to the commercial interests um, that you're having? Um, the upgrade rates for the tiers that we're really interested in, so SME, um, corporate users, um, they're pretty much like where Dropbox is at the, you know, three to four percent mark, um, which which we're really pleased with. Um, education is a market where the upgrade rates are really, really low. And so some of our competitors who are in education specifically, they don't actually sell to individuals, but they sell to schooling. And, um, and that's a game we're not playing. Like, you know, you've got to be in the US, you've got to have, you know, K to 12 uh, sales specialists, school and school districts. Your software needs to cater for that. You have to have the management tools. We're not doing this. Um, uh, so therefore there's this um, user like education as marketing. So the amount of times we heard that someone actually learned about us from their kid that uses that at school is actually quite high, so that's good enough for us. Um, and uh, and in the in the segment where it matters, we're getting like reasonable upgrade rates. So from our perspective, it's really important that we are attracting more of those corporate as well as business users. The um, the next one here is um, what other channels for use user acquisition you know worked I guess post Chrome Chrome Store. 
Yeah, so the Chrome store ceased to exist at some stage. Um, SEO was always a big one for us. So there's like uh, about 50, 60,000 people or so hitting the site every single day. Um, uh, so and that's uh, organic search. Uh, and, you know, we're obviously producing more content um, and trying to systematically do this. Um, we engage in partnerships. So the Dropbox partnership basically means that everyone who has a video in their Dropbox can click on that video and say, edit with Flipchamp. Um, that flushes in users and it actually creates value for Dropbox as well because that their users now to have um, you know, additional means like to do something with the content that they have in their Dropboxes. Um, we've just launched a partnership with Google um, where we have, uh, we're offering Chromebook perks so everyone who buys a Chromebook, uh, 30 million people this year, um, can get a two-month uh, ClipChamp subscription for free, um, which they promote, um, intensify relationship with Google as well. So um, partners is definitely a user acquisition channel. We feel a little bit really um, done this systematically. Um, and, and then there's viral mechanisms. We both experiment a while ago where we we just um, we we, we allowed users to share their videos and distribute a URL with their video embedded, and it was really a hacky way that we built it, and because it was a growth experiment, and and, and we didn't really believe it's it's going to do something because why would you use us? Why why don't you just go to YouTube? But we and and sure enough, we launched it and it sort of was sidelining. We thought like, okay, well, yeah, um, proof it doesn't work. But we we didn't switch it off. And then two months later, we we're looking into it again. And all of a sudden, it started growing. And we're like, what's going on? And then we started like trying to get feedback from from people, and they thought like we were a much much more private product than YouTube. They were afraid like you know if I'm doing a birthday or like a a baby shower video or something that's really private, like I, I don't want this stuff on YouTube. But I'm trusting you guys. So we really took this and then we built it out into a feature. And that is now like they people distribute those share pages and other people watch it and then create new accounts. Um, that is actually now a really big channel for us as well. That's created like within the short time that it's been running more than 100,000 users as well. So um, that's that's really, really interesting. So we're trying to build more of these viral mechanisms as well. Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna end uh, on Rogers, but I've got one before that, and it's just around venture capital, uh, because you know I wanted to get in this conversation because you know as, as I'm promoting the event, you know you guys are pretty low key, right? Given like 11 million users, you could is that is that what what is your kind of relationship with venture capital there? Was it was it your preference to stay as bootstrapped and in control as possible, or you're just waiting on the right partners. What's your, you know, the ClipChamp philosophy on on venture capital? Um, I guess in terms of your 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 your, your, internet, uh, your scaling strategy, I guess. Yeah. So we we're post Series A now. Um, so we're deploying the capital that we raised earlier in the year, which was uh, as was published earlier in the year, nine million US dollars. Um, so we use the capital to obviously grow the team. We, um, you know, we extend the platform. Um, we launch internationally. Um, we will, will change our payment infrastructure and, and, and things like that. So that's, that's all out of this funding cycle um, before we're heading into series B. 
Um, Series A was raced in the US already. Series B is going to be raced in the US. We basically stopped talking to Australian um, VCs. Um, there were a bunch of really, really good ones in Australia that we would have loved to work with, but there was always a structural reason or something that spoke against it. Um, and in the end, we just shifted gears and we went like to the US, we reincorporated. So we're in Delaware Corp now and, and sort of, you know, the, the whole capital strategy plays out in the US now. Um, yeah, it's a shame we couldn't get, you know, anyway, goddamn Australian VCs, I don't know. All right. Um, they're, they're good ones. Like uh, we, we loved like every single conversation we had with Airtree or Blackbird or Grok Ventures. We actually really liked them, right? Um, uh, it's but it's like we were either too late or too too early or too uh, you know too competitive to something else or like there was always like a structural reason that spoke against it and um, uh, and it was a shame like I think I think it it could have really helped in the early days um, you know to have that expertise on board um, in the end we we had to do more of our more ourselves as founders we had we had to we couldn't really rely on the early investors because there was um, you know other than money, you know, a huge credit to them because they took risk early on. They believed in us when no one else did. Um, uh, but outside of the money, there was not really a lot of uh, expertise that we were able to get. And that really changed with the current major investors that we have, which is 1013, Steve Baxter's group, as well as Toll Out of Seattle, um, a bunch of ex-Microsoft guys. Um, the amount of network and the amount of like additional expertise that that gets is incredibly good. So. I wish we would have had that earlier. I guess. I'm 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 mindful of your time. Do you have time for one last question, sure. or we're going to run? Can I uh, just end on? Um, I think it's a nice one to end on. With Roger's question here is, any additional lessons learned or advice for early stage startups? The 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 biggest one I always uh, and and this is usually when I'm talking to a crowd that that is about that is thinking about it is just taking the first step. Um, I think I think a lot of people hesitate, and a lot of people think things through for too long, um, and that's also during the startup journey. Like, should I raise capital now, or shouldn't I? Or like, in, in many cases, it's about it's about when when you're feeling that you have to do something, then it's better to just do it. Like, even if you do it slightly wrong, um, because you can correct it at a later stage. But I think like um, you know, procrastination and hesitation is sort of what's in the way. Um, the other thing that we've learned is um, it's actually that Steve's uh, Steve's advice is he says like most startups die by suicide, not by homicide. So it's not the competition that kills you. It's it's a fallout between founders or um, conflict between founders and early stage investors, uh, etc. So um, a startup journey is a long journey, and um, and and you know between startup founders and startup founders and investors it's like a marriage it's it's effectively like a marriage right and you're going to manage a relationship on an ongoing basis and if you have the slightest doubt that you can work with the people that you're about to create a startup with for the next 10 years you can have tough discussions with them right you can sort of you know go through crises and so on and so forth then these aren't the right co-founders for you and these aren't the right investors for you so be very careful who you pick to work with in the very beginning um, because if like the slightest doubt undoubtedly it'll come back to haunt you uh, thank you all for joining us thank you very much alex really love the chat thanks chris for having me on the show appreciate it thanks everyone we'll see you thank you for tuning in 
To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.